You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what's new and innovative in education. And today we're discussing the future of education. So how might changes in the broader landscape affect what learning looks like in 10 years? KnowledgeWorks Foundation in Cincinnati is the only foundation with a strategic foresight department and a long-standing commitment to illuminating the path forward. As part of their research, Katie King of KnowledgeWorks interviews experts like Tom Vanderark, and so we're sharing one of their discussions in today's podcast. Katie starts by asking about education reform, what's been relatively constant, and what have been the major shifts. Well, I want to start by making a an important distinction. When I talk about education reform, I'm thinking primarily of efforts to make the system that we have work better for more students, particularly groups of students that have historically been underserved. Mm-hmm. But I think the period that we're in is a period of early stage invention where we're attempting to create a new form of education. Uh, I, I think personalized learning is the dominant meme of those efforts. Mm-hmm. And I think it is fair to say that personalized learning is the meme of both reform efforts in existing schools and invention efforts in uh, new school, new learning environment development. Um, so personalized learning is the confluence of many different streams of the last 20 years. It, it, we've thought of it as uh, differentiation. Mm-hmm. Um, differentiation turned into RTI, a, a, a systematic um, intervention-oriented approach to supplement the lockstep um, factory model that we have today and and move around the edges towards a, a more personalized and, uh, and competency-based approach. It, um, it got a big boost when, um, I would say, 10 years ago, when one-to-one earnest, uh, one-to-one ed tech efforts uh, really became uh, widespread. And by 2009, we were talking widely about uh, blended learning And then around 2010, Christensen's definition of uh, blended learning became widely appreciated and the the notion that students should have uh, a unique path and pace and optionality around place. Um, That definition really set the stage for the modern um, term personalized learning, which most of the national foundations started using uh, around 2012. And so for the last five years, I would say it, it has become uh, the dominant investment strategy and um, investment strategy of education foundations and also of ed tech companies um, and the $3 billion a year of um, venture capital that's flowing into the space. Uh, last thing that I'll mention on this first question is that given some frustrations about the way blended uh, and personalized learning was being implemented, meaning 
it for many students ended up being kind of a boring replacement of uh, print worksheets with digital worksheets and kids were clicking through flat dry content. Um, it was decreasing relationships between students and between students and teachers. Um, and I think partially as a result of those um, bad deployments of blended learning, we've seen uh, a reconnection with the hundred year old uh, tradition of learning by doing, of project-based learning, of challenge-based learning, inquiry-based learning. And I would say m most forward-leaning uh, districts and networks and everyone that's attempting to develop new school models is now uh, thinking about mashups of personalized and project-based learning where every student is receiving individualized skill building supports that prepares them for often team-based, community-connected, extended, integrated uh, challenges that not only produce academic skills, but many of the mindsets and uh, habits of success that we're now uh, so interested in. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So you touched on this a little bit, but if you have more detail to, to add, you can. Who would you say are the most important influencers that are currently supporting these mainstream efforts um, that you just uh, just reviewed? Well, um, we started Learn Capital in 2008, and there was uh, basically zero investment in ed tech. There was no national foundation that had an innovation agenda. There was a little bit of NSF money. Uh, Pearson and Houghton were spending some money on digital, uh, but it's it's fair to say that um, there were maybe in aggregate um, several hundred million dollars of um, of innovation R and D, but next to zero, um, as close to a zero percent in terms of a percent of total, uh, as you could calculate, when compared to most other sectors, uh, a five or even 10% R&D spend is, is typical. So I think the most important thing that's happened in the last 10 years is um, a big increase in R&D spending uh, by uh, venture investors, uh, by private equity investors, uh, by now all of the national education foundations, um, and many school districts. Um, uh, all school networks are are now investing in a in an innovation agenda, uh, and so when you when you aggregate those. Um, I think that's one big important set. The second big important thing that's happened in the last 10 years is that the price of technology has, has uh, plummeted to close to zero. Uh, computing costs are almost free. Storage costs are almost free. Uh, devices have gone from $2,000 to $200. Uh, and so now we live in this connected world where 
Um, the cost of computing is very, very inexpensive. Um, in many cases, uh, content is free. Uh, we've seen in the last 10 years the rise of very, very high quality open education resources. And um, it's quite easy to run a K-12 school today with completely uh, free content and mostly free uh, tools. And so that's a second, um, that's a second driver of, of free and inexpensive uh, computing technology. Um, I, I guess the third would just be the combination of those two has produced a new generation of learning models. Um, in K-12, there's been a lot of focus on these learning models. The Next Generation Learning Challenge, NDLC, has funded about 150 new uh, learning models. The XQ Super School competition um, funded uh, 10 exciting new learning models. Uh, in higher ed, we've seen a few new uh, exciting learning models. University of Southern New Hampshire has College for America, which is a real reconceptualization of, of college as a project-based, competency-based, um, fast-track, slow-track um, mentorship model for working adults. And then what's happened in the backdrop is the, um, the rest of the world is moving towards, uh, towards competency um, with the rise of code schools, uh, we're seeing many job clusters moving to this sort of just-in-time uh, sprint to a certificate uh, sort of learning model. Um, and that, that focus on just-in-time learning, um, job-embedded learning, competency-based learning, um, that is fueling a similar interest in K-12. So I'd say those are the three big influencers in the sector today. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. And today, Tom Vanderark is speaking with Katie King of KnowledgeWorks about the future of education. If you'd like to hear more about new learning models, check out our podcast with Aaron Mote and Eric Tucker, co-founders of Brooklyn Lab, in Season 2, Episode 68. And to learn more about how schools are testing new tools and models, check out a series of podcasts that we did with Learning Assembly, including Season 2, Episode 62, The Details Behind Pilot Design. Back to this podcast, Katie asked Tom about where things would be in 10 years, and Tom thinks we're in the very early days of personalized learning. We are in the very early days of personalized learning. I want to tell you a quick story. I was in a, a school design session last week, and we asked people to rate the quality of their personalized learning model and the um, and the quality of their implementation, uh, sort of on a, a scale of one to five. And there was a surprising number of people that rated themselves four and five, really high level uh, in terms of design and implementation. I found that really shocking because um, I think we're in the very, very early stages in the bloodletting and leeches uh, stages of personalized learning where we're mm -hmm. um, piecing together 
personalized learning with tools that don't work together very well, where we can't even combine formative uh, math feedback from uh, Dreambox, ST Math, a, a teacher-led performance task, um, a, a map test or an iReady test. None of that stuff automatically rolls into a grade book and informs next steps in learning. And so discrete tools have gotten better, but we really don't know much about the learners that we work with. And we're not very sophisticated about building learning environments and learning sequences. Uh, so the first answer is um, personalized learning will become much, much more sophisticated over the next 10 years. That will be driven by interoperability and um, and comprehensive learner profiles uh, where we'll know much more about the students that we're working with and where students and learners will have the ability to selectively share information about their learning journey with multiple um, partners and providers. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm very optimistic about um, how that will develop, particularly over a, a long, like a 10-year time horizon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'd like to talk about a, another interesting confluence that we could see in 10 years that I think is even more profound. So if we combine this growing interest in competency-based education where kids uh, show what they know, and they demonstrate mastery to progress. Um, And then if you add to that um, a a movement that we're excited about, we call it place-based education. This is learning everywhere, anywhere, uh, learning outside of school, leveraging community assets. Um, If we advance competency-based far enough, then it really unlocks the potential for kids uh, and families to learn um, in many different places. There'll be a few states, particularly with the current administration's um, encouragement that add portable funding to that. Those are sometimes called education savings accounts. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll see some experiments that combine this idea of competency-based learning, place-based education, sophisticated personalized learning and education savings accounts. In the second half, um, in the next decade, uh, you know, if we more than five years out, uh, self-driving vehicles are, are going to become widespread. By 10 years, I think you'll see uh, districts shifting to fleets of self-driving buses and vans supplemented by uh, community uh, uh, vehicles, and that will just unlock uh, schedules and learning opportunities so that kids will be able to go to school um, uh, on many different schedules. They'll be able to access work and community-based uh, learning experiences. They'll be able to work with multiple providers. Um, and when you put all of those together, we can say, I, I think with some certainty, that learning will look very different in some places. We can also say with some certainty that it will look pretty much the way it looks today in other places. So progress will be quite lumpy and and progress will be driven by a combination of local uh, leadership, investment, 
and uh, the state policy context. So what would you say are some of the implications for learning for, for that future and the fact that, you know, it, it will be uh, distributed differently and, um, and that in some places it will look drastically different than today, others it won't? What, you know, what should we be thinking about if we, if we assume that that's one potential future that's out there? Um, what, what are some of the implications of that for, for leaders in yeah. the field? And- well, uh, one, just because that the opportunity is so great, um, I think we should be excited about it. And um, we should be having, uh, we just co-hosted a learner experience design conference d- discussing these opportunities. And so we, we ought to have many more of those conversations that bring people into uh, the discussions of what might be, what if, how, and when. Um, the implication that I'm most concerned about is is equity. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just concluding a very um, interesting and historically odd period of time where the federal government was highly involved in education where there was a bipartisan consensus uh, that led to an an era that I think of as standards-based reform, and that included common learning expectations, accountability, and standardized assessments. And that was an era um, that we can be proud of from the standpoint of a bipartisan uh, commitment to equity but today we recognize um, how vast um, the unintended consequences were of that regime, how poorly it worked um, in hindsight, uh, and the damage that it did in uh, in so many respects. Um, Can you elaborate on what you see as sort of the the unintended consequences or that, that you it, think were the I most... think that's a good question. It's worth doing because I think for me, one thing it's done as somebody who is involved in all of those deals, mm-hmm. it's made me humble about w- what I know and what I don't. It's made me much more quickly and deeply considered potential unintended consequences of what I advocate for. Um, an example of the damage is just the the um, the PTSD that American educators are facing today after 25 years under the the thumb of standardized uh, tests and uh, and you know let me say that I was eager to have standardized tests introduced as a new superintendent in 1994 because I was I was operating a system completely blind I didn't really know anything about my kids or their progress. Um, I didn't know what to do or where to invest because I just didn't know um, how we were doing. And so the the opportunity to have uh, at least flawed, you know, snapshot information of, of all of our kids and begin to understand the profound differences in groups of uh, students was, in my view, 20 years ago, a real uh, gift. But it turns out that came with real consequences that even um, the light touch accountability uh, threats that came with standardized testing caused a dramatic narrowing of the curriculum 
and uh, focus on test scores over learning. Um, and so we've seen just a real reduction in authentic learning. I think we've seen a reduction in student agency. We've, we've seen a reduction in many of the outcomes that we now understand are most important of, of agency, uh, of grit, of self-management, uh, of uh, collaboration, creativity, uh, critical thinking. We just haven't been asking that of our students while we've been drilling them to uh, produce high test scores. Um, so standards-based reform was well-intentioned, but, um, but quite destructive. Um, so the, the new task that a few places are taking up is how, how do we reverse course while simultaneously uh, continuing to demand uh, equity in in all that we do. And I'm what I'm most afraid of now is that with the federal government out of the business, um, will states move forward with their own commitment to, uh, to equity? And, and if so, how will that be uh, expressed? Uh, I, I think an unintended consequence of the, the end of accountability could be uh, worsening gaps in in many places. And do you think this um, the the future image that you outlined around place based education and competency and um, and portability and even bringing in the self driving cars? Where with with that particular image of a possible future, are there certain specific unintended consequences of those? Um, yes. of those types that you're, that you're particularly concerned about or wanting to try and mitigate yes. at this early stage? What might some of those be? There are. We, uh, last year, we published a book called Smart Parents. And th the reason for that uh, project was our sense that, um, on one hand, it was a wonderful time for learners. There the, the learning opportunity set gets better every single month. The tools get better. The learning models get better. And so for, for families uh, and learners that are looking for new opportunities, it's great. On the other hand, it's, it's becoming more complicated than ever. And it's becoming more and more important to have one or more uh, thoughtful learning advisors mm -hmm. uh, at home and at school. And we concluded in Smart Parents that now that we've nearly closed the digital divide, the, the new divide that uh, exists is the guidance divide. Uh, it's, it's students that have um, access to adults that care about them, uh, who they are, and who they want to become. Uh, technology is just an amplifier. Um, and it amplifies what whatever it is you try to do with it. And unguided uh, technology will be used uh, in mindless ways or perhaps even in harmful ways. Uh, with thoughtful guidance, um, it can be really, uh, really powerful. And so students that have access to uh, these learning Sherpas uh, in a, in a formal environment and in, at home in an informal uh, environment are going to be able to use 
new tools and new learning environments uh, with great benefit and providing those for students that don't have them uh, in their lives is enormously complicated uh, and expensive. So th this is not an easy fix. Um, I think this is a, a problem worth um, worth focusing on um, at the district level, at the network level, and um, and experimenting with at at the city level and many different places to begin to understand how we might close this um, this guidance divide. So let's um, let's change directions a little bit and and start to think, do you see anything that has the potential to drastically change the, this trajectory that we're on? So you've just outlined some of the um, some of you know potentially where we might be in in ten years and and some of the implications of that. Is there anything that you see that um, that could move us in a dire different direction, um, either you know just a slightly different direction or really uh, drastically change the the direction or nature of of these reform efforts? Well, the the confluence that I described earlier of of competency based and place based uh, learning with with portable funding and then supercharged with self-driving vehicles um, and and a new constellation of community facilities a new way to think about um, where learning happens that's a that's nothing short of a profound you know reconceptualizing of uh, public education delivery mm -hmm. um, what I am most interested in these days are how uh, artificial intelligence is changing every aspect of our lives, including education. Um, a, a number of the things that I just described would be enabled by artificial intelligence. So obviously, um, self-driving, a web of self-driving vehicles and uh, dynamic scheduling and um, these personalized learning powered by uh, learner profiles, all of that would be dramatically aided by um, by AI, what when I look out uh, in the future and think about the implications of AI, I think we can say with some certainty is that it will produce uh, waves of job loss. Well, first of all, it'll produce waves of job change, where most sectors become. Um, where most people begin working with smart machines. Uh, so augmented intelligence. And then you'll see waves of job loss uh, through automation. And that will happen at different rates in different sectors and in different states and uh, countries. So this will not be sudden, but it will be continuous uh, for the for the next fifty years, uh, and trying to predict how rapidly and in what sec uh, what succession this happens and where, um, and then the aligning uh, workforce development against those uh, those waves, so you're just in time, but not uh, you know not too far out, um, is enormously 
complicated. The, the flip side of, of, of all that gloom and doom is that uh, um, AI and smart machines is going to dramatically improve lives. Um, it will solve many problems. It'll make us healthier. We'll live longer. There's a chance that we'll be more peaceful. We'll definitely be more um, efficient and economical. There are many ways um, that we'll begin to make new contributions and new uh, jobs and new sectors will arise. Um, we can much more easily predict job loss than we can job creation. And so we don't really understand the new um, opportunity set on the horizon given life with smart machines. Uh, and so my focus this year is really to try to understand how our learning expectations should change as a result of life with smart machines and the automation economy. Uh, in other words, what should high school graduates and college graduates know and be able to do given the likelihood um, that they'll live through waves and waves of change? I think the short answer to that question is that we need to do our best to prepare them for novelty and complexity. The problem that we've created with education reform is that we've created routine and compliance, and those are exactly the wrong conditions that we want if we want to prepare kids for novelty and complexity. So the schools that we have today are ill-suited for the world that our kids are headed for. And so that suggests to me that ed reform, changing the schools that we have, is of some value, but the real work lies beyond that or alongside that, and that's creating new learning environments, usually from scratch, around a completely new premise, leveraging new tools, um, and incorporating in interesting ways the the power of, uh, of AI-driven personalized learning with authentic team-based, community-connected, extended, um, impact-oriented challenges. Mm -hmm. So how to get more kids into those kinds of environments as rapidly as we can to better prepare them for the coming automation economy, that's my current preoccupation. To the question, where to start, Tom talked about updating graduate profiles, a description of what students should know and be able to do. Ken Kay talked about updating your graduate profile in Season 2, Episode 49, and David Ratray from the LA Chamber discussed shared leadership for deeper learning in Season 2, Episode 26. So be sure to check out those episodes to learn more. Number one, start with a new graduate profile of community agreements around what kids should know and be able to do. The good news is that's pretty easy to create, surprisingly easy. We've seen examples in hundreds of communities. Uh, if you ask a good question, simple question, how has the world changed since you were in school? And people will describe it quite um, thoughtfully. And then if you say, as a result, what should students know and be able to do uh, to be successful in that world? Uh, they give you really thoughtful answers. And if you ask them what kinds of experiences uh, would they need more of to be prepared for that world? Um, around those things, you can build a new graduate profile 
uh, profile of a graduate from Ed Leader 21 is uh, a great uh, a great example of that. I think those profiles are pretty good, but still rear view mirror focused. And so I, I do spend most of my time looking at what's coming in the, in the windshield. Um, I'm, so I'm afraid that even those well-intentioned efforts to update graduate profiles may not be moving, uh, quickly enough. Mm -hmm. Um, I think this, while this can sound scary, this, um, agenda of, of personalized learning uh, that's informed by ed tech, but is grounded in, um, in real craftsmanship is, is work that we can rally right and left around. Uh, I was having this chat with Ron Berger from EL Education. Ron, as an educator, I deeply respect and, you know, for 50 years, he's been encouraging uh, students to do work that they can be proud of, that their parents are proud of, that their community can be proud of. And one of the most rewarding things of the last year for me in studying AI is that it's just come, I've come back to the idea of deeper learning, uh, that engaging kids deeply in meaningful challenges, um, asking them to do important work, asking them to produce products that are important to them and their community that may be the best preparation that we know of. And today we can, we can support it. We can scaffold it with personalized learning, but in some respects, we're, we're relearning Dewey all over again. In some respects, we're, you know, with Sizer relearning the, the lessons of Horace, um, and around that agenda, I think we can build a, a new consensus and one that um, makes school uh, an interesting, a powerful place to be, one that produces a broad set of outcomes, one that, uh, that acknowledges um, equity and the challenge that come with it. Uh, so I'm... You know, as challenging as this all seems, I'm I'm optimistic that we can each of the next ten years develop better and better uh, learning models that produce uh, you know more and more interesting schools that work better for teachers and kids. So uh, it's, these last couple of questions are are kind of more more general and and open ended, so you can take them in any direction you'd you'd like, but. Um, if you could answer one question about the future of education reform, what would it be? So what's that kind of uncertainty that you really wish that you could, um, could understand how it's going to play out? Cause you think it's going to be really, really critical for how things, how things, uh, unfold. Um, it's a subset of interoperability. It's combining formative. Mm -hmm. Um, right now we're kind of a hot mess as a sector with, <laughs> too much data and not enough information. And we're at the point that international shipping was um, 50 years ago. And then they developed a standardized container that allowed the whole world to very, very quickly in the matter of two years to consolidate around a common standard for how goods would be shipped by truck and rail and ship. And we're at the point where we need a new shipping container for education, where we 
make some decisions about how we're going to organize information so that we can uh, quickly and efficiently uh, combine information from multiple sources to create comprehensive learner profiles to be much more informed about how about the next steps in learning for uh, for kids. So that that's a wonky sort of a plumbing answer, but it is behind a lot of the progress that we need to make in the next decade. And so the the final question in your preferred future, and you've alluded to some of this, but if you have anything else you want to add in your preferred future, what do efforts to improve education look like? And what does our education system look like in 10 years? Well, I hope it works the, uh, the way we've talked about, um, uh, I have a new granddaughter that's two years old. And so this is a live question for me as I think about what do I want her, you know, elementary and intermediate, um, learning to be like, um, and I want to make sure that her learning is um, engaging and powerful, um, that it's both highly personal, uh, but also highly collaborative, that she has many varied opportunities to work in diverse settings and places, um, that she has lots of room, lots of time, and lots of support for learning what she wants to learn, how she wants to learn. Um, so I think of it as sort of a modern Montessori, mm-hmm. um, one, but a Montessori that is fully, um, you know, supercharged by a, a smart platform that uh, really helps her grow in, um, in interesting and in authentic ways. At the secondary level, I'm really interested in accelerated and supported pathways that move young people uh, quickly into um, work and learn career ladders where if they want to, they have the opportunity to begin earning um, money and credentialing uh, while they're in high school, if that's what they'd like. I think the amount of student debt that people are racking up today is completely insane and totally unsustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is now very, very possible for any student with a learning Sherpa with somebody who knows and cares to help co-construct a super efficient, super affordable uh, pathway from something called secondary education into um, a working and learning a ladder of entrepreneurship. Uh, so I think we'll see in in the next 10 years evidence of higher education, um, at least the fringes of higher education really crumbling under their own weight, third tier colleges uh, closing uh, because it's just unconscionable how much debt young people are piling up. And as the alternatives become better and better, uh, very, very quickly, uh, it will become obvious to more and more people that it's um, it's completely insane to go to college without a really clear learning objective in mind and without a, a sponsored path or a, a supported path that 
helps you achieve your goals uh, really quickly and efficiently. Tom closed by mentioning the importance of a common approach to promoting and measuring habits of mind and social-emotional learning. He's optimistic about NGLC MyWays and the Castle and Aspen Institute's National Commission on Social, Emotional, and Academic Development. For more on that front, be sure to check out our conversation with Roger Weisberg, Season 2, Episode 4. For more on the future of learning, stay tuned for a great conversation with Catherine Prince of KnowledgeWorks and Andy Calkins from NGLC. For more on innovations in learning, be sure to check out our blog on gettingsmart.com and subscribe and rate our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Kat signing off. 